Stand Firm Ministries, Biblical Truth, taught by Dr. Shane Perez. I think a lot of people think there's not a lot of value in the Old Testament. I think a lot of churches don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament much anymore. But I think one of the themes that you will get as you read the Old Testament is that God is holy. And God will not be mocked. And if people do not follow Him, there are consequences. For the outline of Ezekiel, the chapters that we're covering today is 13 through 24. So we're still in the first section on the prophecies of judgment on Judah. And this will be our, our, our last week there. And then next week we'll get into the judgment against seven foreign nations. And then a little bit into uh, some of the words of encouragement that he has for Israel's restoration. Now my goal today is to take the 12 chapters... Uh, um, we read this week, and to condense the content, of course, I can't go over every single thing that's in there, but I do want you to have an overview of the content that is in there. But not only condense the content, but I want to, in some parts, I will stop and I will compare to the actions, the actions of Israel with the actions of us today, and some of the things that may be going on in our own environment. Not only do I want to condense and compare, but also uh, one of the most important things I want you to get from it today is I want to um, hopefully allow God to convict you by the words that you hear today. Convict us of our own personal sin, convict us of sin in our country, and understand that God will not be mocked. He is a holy God, and He does judge evil. Just like the Israelites, we think, well, I've done evil or a nation's done evil and God hadn't done anything about it, so maybe he won't judge it. But he's patient. Israel thought the same thing, but eventually God will bring judgment. Well, let's jump right in. Let's look at chapter 13. Chapter 13 covers false prophets. It's interesting some of the things that he says about the false prophets. He says they prophesied out of their own imagination. These were people that were claiming to be messengers of God. And then they were walking around saying things that they just made up. That had no biblical foundation at all. It says they followed their own spirit. And it's also very interesting that one of the phrases he uses for me says, they expect God to fulfill their own words. Almost like God was working for them instead of them working for God. Their visions were false, their divinations were a lie. And one thing they would do is they would say, peace, everything's going to be okay, it's going to be all right. God's judgment isn't coming. That's a radical thinking there. That's an extremist thinking there. Everything's okay. Just be calm and relax. There's peace. They would say there's peace when there is no peace. And that chapter also condemns witchcraft and some other things as well. I want to pause for a moment as we see in chapter 13, God was 
issuing statements about the false prophets of the time of Ezekiel. But I dare say that we have some false prophets around us today. Anytime I share news articles with you, it's kind of it's interesting. Don't, don't have to look too far. Quick searches, and it's amazing what you can find. Or even just what happens this week. Sometimes I don't even look for it. It just pops up on, in some of the, the news or so forth. I don't know if you heard about this, but the Church of England allows blessings for same-sex couples. And what you're seeing here is one at a time, the religious organizations are succumbing to this. One denomination at a time, one church at a time, and this is just the latest one for this week. Now, I mentioned last week about Andy Stanley a little bit and how he's compromised and some of his teaching is not biblical. Well, I wanted to bring you some evidence today and show you a little clip. Now, I could show you the whole, the whole clip there, but it's probably about five minutes, but I'm just going to show you a little clip sort of picking up in the middle. And this is a story about a homosexual couple at one of his satellite churches. And as the story goes, the very, if I remember this right, the very first Sunday they showed up at Buckhead Church was our Strategic Service Sunday. And in Strategic Service Sunday, we spend the entire time recruiting people to volunteer. And so my friend's partner said, hey, I like this church. I think we should get involved. So on the first Sunday they're there, they go down and sign up to, to be in strategic service and join a host team, one of our guest services team. What I knew, and I double-checked with her to make sure I was correct, was the last I, where we had left off was he, my friend's partner, and he's a friend now, but back then not so much, my friend's partner was still married. And the divorce is taking longer than, than they expected. It's kind of getting dragged out. So I called my buddy and said okay I know things have been awkward you know between us but look uh, and, and I'm glad you're in church that's a good thing and I'm glad you're at one of our churches you know that's a good thing but your partner he's he's still married so see this is just good old-fashioned adultery like you're in a sexual relationship with someone else's husband uh, you know it was you know I've never said that before but anyway so I said so you can't be on a guest services team okay this is you're just living in you know this is this is clear okay you can't do this you're married or you're not as long as he's married you can't serve on a, host, on a guest services team and so I kind of you know kicked him off the team and so understandably they um, left the church and you know what, if I were them and saw the world the way they saw it at the time, I would leave too. Who wants to go to a church that says, oh, we want you to come help us. Oh, you can't help us. So they left the church. Did you notice that Andy Stanley only addressed the sin of adultery, not homosexuality? Andy intervened solely because the husband and wife's divorce had not been formalized, not because the two men were in a homosexual relationship. What a double standard. The sin of adultery disqualifies a man from serving at a church, but the sin of homosexuality does not. It gets in even worse. I'll ask her first. I said, who's coming? She said, well, um, my boyfriend, his daughter, me, my daughter, my ex-husband, and his partner. I need six seats. And so, you know, halfway in our first Christmas carol, I'm sitting here, I'm standing here in my corner chair, singing, looking up at the screen. And I look across the aisle and about four people down, are my six friends, all singing Christmas carols together on the front row. And the only thing I could think was modern family. Hi, I'm Cortland Russell. I didn't grow up going to church or really having a relationship with Christ. It wasn't until I moved to Atlanta and met one of my now best friends, Gregory Cook, 
that I was connected with a community of LGBTQ Christians. I saw shining examples of healthy LGBTQ Christ-centered relationships and really started to have that personal relationship with Jesus for the first time in my life. I remember driving to Starting Point one week um, and listening to Andy's messages right before Starting Point groups as a way of preparing for that session and I just started crying. I'm excited to be baptized and publicly share that I love Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. I think you get all that, but in Stanley, he had big issues with adultery, but not with homosexuality. In fact, you can go to his church and, and you can be part of, uh, I guess, um, the LGBTQ a ministry, and they're not, and other churches have had those kind of ministries before, but a lot of ministries I've heard of in the past, they try to help people out of that lifestyle. But it doesn't seem the case at Andy Stanley's church. Now, I think it's important for us to point things like this out. You need to point false teachers out. Not saying that, that uh, I'm a better preacher than Andy Stanley, and probably not. Probably not even a better person than Andy Stanley. But if he's not teaching what's in the Bible, then he's not teaching right. Make sure you recognize false prophets. They're nothing new. They, they were around back in Ezekiel's day. And God doesn't like false prophets. When I hear some of these things with the Church of England or Andy Stanley, I feel like God would say the same thing. Y'all saying that you just made this stuff up. I didn't say any of this in my word. You're just making it up. You're following your own spirit. You expect me to uh, fulfill the words that you say. If you say it's okay, then you want me to just come in and second that and say it's okay. It's not the way God works. We follow him. He does not Follow us. In Ezekiel chapter 14, he was sort of showing and illustrating that the people were very bad off. Why were they bad off? Because they had idols in their hearts. Now he picks on them a lot for their actions, but really their actions were just symbolic of what was already in their heart. It all starts... In their hearts, in this passage, God's message is repent. It's amazing, a lot of churches, you can go to many services today and they'll have lots of different messages. But it seems like John the Baptist had this message. It seems like Jesus had this message and we see it even back in the book of Ezekiel where they're constantly telling the people to repent. Repent, turn from your idols, and renounce all your detestable practices. I feel like we don't hear that enough. It's almost more of, you know what, whatever sin you got, it's fine. You're not perfect. You're saved by grace. Just come and join us. God was pretty upset with the people, and he even tells them that if Noah, uh, Daniel, and Job were here, they couldn't even save you guys. They could only save themselves by their own righteousness, but you wouldn't even listen to them. And then he tells them he's going to send his judgment. 
You have these idols in your hearts and judgment is going to come. And he even lists the four ways and it's going to come. The sword, famine, wild beast, and plague. I'm always fascinated by the, the wild beast. You ever thought about it much? In verse 15 of that chapter, it mentions that it's going to send wild beasts so they can't even pass through a certain area of land because the animals are so wild. And I think to myself, what exactly does that look like? What animals could be controlling that land that no man could walk through? I think it's very fascinating, but it also shows how God is in control of everything. He's in charge of other nations. He's in charge of whether the food grows, of the wild animals, and he's even in charge of diseases. Chapter 15, Judah is described as a useless vine. He says, as I have given the wood of the vine as fuel for fire, so I will treat the people living in Jerusalem. And we'll see this sort of in another chapter, but he describes the people as useless. They have made the land desolate because they have been unfaithful. If you read through your reading this week, you got to chapter 16 and then you might have paused a moment. After I read it, I stopped and it made me think of the, the ugly duckling. It's a kid's story, but this chapter probably shouldn't be read by young kids, I would say, because it's not really G-rated. It's pretty intense. It's very graphic. But it talks about a baby that was born and just being left for dead. And then God took this baby and raised it and, and uh, um, married it, and it became something beautiful. Then she prostituted herself. If that wasn't enough, she had children, and then she sacrificed the children to idols. And instead of re receiving any kind of payments for her service, she actually paid others to prostitute with her. That's a good, clean version there. If you read the biblical person, it's very, a biblical version is very in-depth, and it's very graphic. I think that was one of the chapters that was very long. It gives a lot of detail. But to sum it up for you, I like the analogy, like I said, of the ugly duckling where it started young and innocent but needed some help. And then God helped and they became a beautiful nation. And then on their own actions, they just turned into something ugly and not attractive. Two eagles in a vine in chapter 17. God uses a lot of analogies and a lot of stories. But to think about it, he's trying to get the same point across. Any of y'all ever taught math? You teach math, some kids, every kid's different in math. Math is very unique. Now, some kids, you can tell them one time and they get it. Tell me, I got it. Other kids, show me one time and I got it. You show them once or maybe twice or three times and they got it. Then other kids maybe need to even use their hands. Okay, well, let's get the beads or, or let me get something that you can put hands on and visualize. The point is, is that 
to teach kids math, you need to be able to be a little flexible and be able to teach the same thing in a variety of different ways. I feel like that's what God's doing through these judgments. How many different ways do I need to tell you? But here's another story he gives, a story of two eagles and a vine, and he's symbolizing everything that has taken place in Israel, at least the current actions that were taking place. And one eagle, I'll just summarize what he's referring to here, was the king of Babylon, came over and took the king of Israel and then took him back into exile. And then he replaced him with another leader, another member of the royal family. The king that he took away was, was Jehoiachin, and then he replaced him with Zedekiah. And he sort of made an agreement with him and said, uh, you will submit to me. And Zedekiah said, yes, I will. I will submit to you, leader in Babylon. But then he changed his mind. He rebelled and he tried to get aid and even tried to get military uh, equipment and even an army from Egypt. And God told him not to, and it didn't work. Then God made a promise to Zedekiah said, you too will be taken over to Babylon, and that is where you would die. Chapter 18, it talks a little bit about personal responsibility. I put grapes up there because he was responding to a famous quote that they used. The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Well, that meant the children suffer the consequences of the actions of the parents. And what God was saying is, well, the way I judge is not the same way. The one who sins is the one who will die. Not the parents for the children or the children for the parents, but it's the one who sins will be held responsible. The Hebrew word used for righteousness or righteous means to be straight. The word used for wicked needs to be out of joint. The thing about it, you can't be both. You're either straight or you're crooked. I feel like in our day and age, and I feel like even Israel thought the same thing. Well, we're straight enough. We're crooked, but we have some points where we're sort of straight. And they lied to themselves and told them, well, that's good enough for us. And God's looking down and said, well, you don't get to decide that. That's, that's my determination there. And that is not good enough. You're either with me or you're not. You're either righteous or you're wicked. You can't be both. And God sort of concludes there and he tells them he will judge each one according to their own ways. Then he actually repeats this again. Repent and live. Chapter 19, we go through, we say, lament for Israel's leaders. It's really more or less a sad poem about the leadership in Israel. I was reading a commentary from this commentary. Uh, has some good notes, so I, I took this from it. The two lessons to learn from the poem would be, number one, no nation can live on its past glories. Israel had done good in the past. 
They had good leaders in the past, but now not so much. Number two, nations fall because of the wrong kind of leader. And it doesn't matter how that leader gets there, gets into power. It could be assassination. It could be a rigged election. All different options on how the leader gets there. But once the leader gets there and they do wrong and they lead people away from God, that's how nations fall. And I look at our nation. And I think one thing that I'm finding out, people, you know, hindsight is always 20-20. We see how things play out through the years. And we see that leaders that I thought were, were good at one time, now that we look back and find out more information, it's like, whoa, maybe even those leaders back then I thought was good was not that good. I think our country has been in a downhill spiral for a long time. And now I think it's really becoming super evident. But those things that Ezekiel was talking to his people about, we need to understand and see where we're at. No nation can live on its past glories. I think America has been a shining light on a hill. America has done tremendous things to promote Christianity all around the world. Our country has done amazing things, fighting for freedom, standing up for what is right, opposing evil uh, in other countries. We have done that. But are we doing it today? Let's look at a little glimpse of what some of our leaders are, are doing now. Uh, we had a State of the Union this past week, and there were a couple of uh, political leaders that uh, wore some pins. And this is very interesting because most people, no matter which um, opinion they have regarding abortion, it seems like we've always said it was wrong. It's not a good choice. Just there is one side that believed that women should be allowed to make the choice and the other side would be no, that's murdering uh, a child, an innocent child. But both of them would sort of say it's not a great thing, but it may need to be done. Absolutely doesn't need to be done. But now we have some of our political leaders wearing pins that says abortion and then it has a little heart in the middle. I'll just move on to the next thing. Interesting thing about abortion is, guess who's fighting for abortion rights now probably more than anybody else? The Satanists have jumped in the fray. Satanists sued for a religious right to ritual abortions. The abortion defense is that it's a satanic act of worship. The TST is the Satanic Temple. The Satanic Temple Health's first telehealth clinic will provide medication 
for safe abortions through the mail for members and for those who wish to perform the Satanic Temple's abortion ritual. The goal of this first clinic is to allow our members to have access to safe and legal abortions no matter where they live or what their financial situation may be. So it seems like the Satanic Temple even has their own abortion ritual that they like to perform. So if you're one of these politicians and you love abortions, you have something in common with our modern day Satanist. Well, what else is going on with our leaders? This should um, scare you a little bit. So in this weird inverted world that we're living in, the criminals are actually the victims. So who are the criminals? Well, obviously, sincere Christians. They're the real problems. Sincere Christians in the middle class, boy, they're dangerous. And the FBI, it's hard to believe this, doubtless there are decent FBI agents, but the FBI as an organization has joined in the hunt for Christians, and we have proof of it. The FBI tried to manufacture crimes against sincere Catholics. The FBI's Richmond field office recently published an internal document promising to punish, quote, radical traditionalist Catholics and their ideology. Now, just to make something completely clear, the Bill of Rights prohibits the government from weighing in on sectarian or religious questions. They don't get to decide whether your religion is good or bad. They have to be agnostic on it. But the FBI has decided if you're too sincere about Catholicism, you're a criminal. The document cites obvious lies from the fascist and dishonest Southern Poverty Law Center several times. Now, we only have this memo because a recently suspended FBI agent called Kyle Serafin brought it to the public, and we're grateful that he did. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This, it's hard to believe this is even real. This is one of those, what was your reaction when you saw this? Well, my reaction is predictable. I mean, I'm a Catholic, number one, and uh, I think it's appalling. It's one of those things that uh, w when the government has gotten to the point where you talked about our Second Amendment rights and those defend our First Amendment rights to practice our religion, particularly the way that we want to. Um, I'm friends with people who love the Latin Mass. I, I grew up in a, a traditional school where I actually learned Latin in fifth and sixth grade and all the way through high school. And um, it doesn't seem reasonable, but it is the state of the FBI at this point that they are so desperate to find white supremacists that they're going to look at the Catholic Church. But I think if we're realistic about it, what they're doing is they have found a gateway in what they think is fringe Catholicism in order to, um, to move into Christians in general and, and declare them to be the actual uh, the criminals in this country or the potential terrorists. And, and that's what I think we're seeing. Because this, the whole document basically is written from the, pers the perspective of somebody who thinks that there are significant abortion rights that need to be defended and also an LG, uh, LGBTQ agenda that has to be pushed uh, down the American people's throats. And those are antithetical to Catholicism. So it's, it's pretty easy. It's an open door into Christians in this country, which is pretty much all the country. Well, yeah, and also Orthodox Judaism and Islam and Mormonism. I mean, they're right. And I, did no one in the FBI say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. It's not our job to decide which is a better religion and criminalize people's religious belief. Did anyone in your world within the Bureau say that? Well, obviously, the whistleblower who brought it to me. Uh, so I'm in contact with a number of people who work in the FBI and have the same yeah. values that probably you and I do. And so, you know, they they brought it to me. One of them brought it to me and said, this is a problem. And this person is not a Catholic. 
Uh, But he or she stated the very simple statement, which is that if they're going to go after radical traditional Catholics, then uh, radical traditional Baptists are next and radical traditional evangelicals and and anybody else that uh, espouses essentially what what is radical, which is just a a Christian faith. And that is uh, dangerous, apparently, in this country. No, no, some people make it tired of the negativity because it seems like I show these things all the time. What I'm trying to do, I feel like me and Ezekiel have some things in common here. I'm trying to make sure you get the big picture over and over again. You've got to see what is going on in our country. And you can, you can just stick your head in the sand and you can pretend it's not happening or, oh, well, that may be happening, but it's not going to go to the place where you think it's going to go. Really? What do you think this is going to end up? I'd encourage you to spend this week and research traditional Catholicism and see how much you have in common uh, with them. It's really just a conservative branch of Catholicism. And you're going to see, oh, wow, I may have a lot in common with them on some of the moral examples, uh, on some of the moral issues. In chapter 20, Ezekiel meets with the elders. Put a little picture of drive-through history on here because what he does is he just tries to give them the big picture. This is the history. This is what has happened. God chose you as a people. You betrayed him. God restored you. And now you're betraying uh, God again. Uh, God punished the people that was in the past because they turned their back on him. He's going to do the same to you as well, is what Ezekiel was saying. And I would dare say he will do the same to us as well. God is not mocked if you turn your back on God. His judgment will come. And chapter 21 talks about his sword of judgment. He refers to Babylon as the sword that's going to come and bring punishment and the wrath of God um, on Judah. The, The word sword is mentioned 15 times in this chapter. God's judgment will come. Chapter 22, it talks about again... Israel becoming useless. God describes Israel as being dross. Uh, this picture, if you, can, if you can see it here, this is uh, molten metal, which is very pretty. It's nice and, and shiny. But what I want you to see, if you look back here in the pot a little bit, you see the stuff sort of floating on top. Now, not too long ago, maybe it's a, maybe it's a couple years now, our school, we made, a, we made a little forge and we started melting some aluminum cans. And every aluminum, we can, every aluminum can we got, it has some maybe dirt or, or leftover residue inside. It's got the paint and stuff, whatever colors on the outside. You don't have to worry about that. The only thing you do, you put it in the fire and guess what happens? The fire takes care of it all. It burns all the impurities away and what happens to them, they don't necessarily magically disappear, but they sort of gather on top there. And in fact, when we first did it, we was putting can after can after can, and we just see this um, like flaky stuff forming on top, and we was like, what's happening? Why is it not melting? And then we eventually got a spoon and started stirring it a little bit. We, we realized that the nice, shiny, pure metal was underneath. And then we realize all you have to do is you tilt it up and you pour it out. And most of the time, you don't even have to hold the dross, the the useless stuff on top. Don't even have to hold it back because it's very light and flaky. But the heavy stuff would just pour right out. And that's what we did. We put it in molds. 
if you want a close up of what dross looks like, that's sort of what it looks like. You see little pieces of it over to the side because it's just flaky. The point is, it's not uh, any good for anything. It's useless. You can't do anything with it. It's not even hard, so you can't even make anything out of it. Uh, you just throw it away. It's pointless. And that was what God was comparing the people that would not follow him. That's what he's comparing them to. The people that were supposed to be his chosen people, they turned their back on him and started doing all this evil. And God looks at them now and says, there's nothing I can do for you. You're useless for me. There's no use for you. I have to do something. My judgment will come. Chapter 23, I tell the two daughters, this is very similar to chapter 16, where it's um, a not a PG-rated uh, chapter. Because an analogy of two daughters, one who, uh, both who grew up to become prostitutes. One of them is symbolic of the north, which is Israel, and then the other one is symbolic of the south, which is Judah. And what he keeps pushing over and over again is that the people have forgotten him. He has done so much for them, the people have forgotten him. And now they must bear the consequences of what they have done. Chapter 24, and so it begins. On the tenth day of the tenth month, it is the ninth year of Ezekiel's exile. In 588 B.C., Jerusalem becomes under siege. What that means is that Babylon has them surrounded. Nobody going in and out. You think, well, that's not too bad. It only had to last 18 months. But guess what happened inside? With nobody going in and out, they run out of food pretty quickly. And a lot of it, they just starve to death and then diseases or so forth. And eventually Babylon comes in and then kills many of them and scatters the rest or so forth. But this is in chapter 24 is when the very beginning of the siege begins. Jerusalem is surrounded. And, and super sad thing that happens in chapter 24 is Ezekiel's wife dies. And God tells him, don't publicly mourn for her. And the reason why I don't want you to do that is because I want your wife to illustrate the temple that's in Jerusalem. The temple um, that has been built by Solomon and, and that you love so much, it is about to be destroyed. And the exiles, they won't even, they won't even mourn for it. Just like I'm telling you not to mourn for your wife. Ezekiel and other prophets tried to explain to the people of Israel that their actions and behaviors would bring the wrath of God. God sent warning after warning. He, sent, uh, he made it through illustrations, symbolism, analogies, sermons, and all these different methods. He's trying to get the same point across. You have betrayed me and judgment is coming. Repent. Repent. But the people would not listen and turn from their ways. Now the warnings were over. 
the warnings were finished. Now the destruction that God had promised had begun. I think God gives us this passage as a warning or even gives us a book of Ezekiel as a warning to what I think really happens to all nations, especially those nations that claim to follow God. Claim to follow God and follow Him for a limited time and then all of a sudden we turn our back on God. America has turned its back on God. Here's some articles on what's been going on through the, really through the years. City Council on King, I think that was North Carolina, votes to remove Christian flag and religious symbols from Veterans Memorial. In Alabama, you have the city decided to remove the Christian flag, citing the high cost of litigation. Don't want to fight it in court, it's going to cost us so much, so the easiest thing is just to remove it. And Georgia, city council, reverses course. They once said when it was first come against them, hey, you need to remove that flag. They said, absolutely not. It's been here for so long. We'll take it to court. We're not moving the flag. Then they changed their mind, said, okay, we'll remove the flag. I don't know what's worse is that our nation is um, turning its back on God or that we as Christians are not putting up much of a fight against it. I, I use the Christian flag because we're on a, a, a crusade trying to do a movement of raising Christian flags. But I could have put the Ten Commandments. I could have put prayer. I could have put almost anything that had to do with God. I did want to end on a good note. I think this is a stand that you've got to take. I don't know if you saw this this week. There was a Christian surfer, Bethany Hamilton. She actually had a movie. What was the movie called? Soul Surfer. Uh, where she was, a, I think when she was a young teenager, she was surfing in Hawaii and her arm got, gets bitten off by a shark. But she still is able to, to surf and she's been very successful in the surfing community. But the Christian, I highly recommend the, um, the movie. She was a Christian and the movie just uh, illustrates her life and everything she went through. Well, uh, some of this transgender stuff has approached her sport. And she said she's not going to put up with it. I'm just going to, I'm not going to compete. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put up with it. This is wrong. This is not right. And I'm going to take a stand. Even if it costs me my career, this is where I make my living. This is my life. But you know what? I'm not going to do it because this crosses a line. Taking a stand for God is a lot more important than a career or a bank account. So I want to end with that. I just think it's really sad that we don't see more of this. Because most of us, and we don't need to point the finger too far, most of us are just willing to compromise. But I do believe when we stand for, before God, we won't have many excuses. We'll be held accountable. Why did you let your country go down this road? Why did you let your community go down this road? Maybe in some cases, why did you let your church go down this road? And our, our excuse will probably be, well, there was nothing I could do. And God will say, no, that's, that's not true. 
I was wanting to use you to do something great. But you wouldn't let me. You were fearful. You were cowardice. You wouldn't take a stand. I want us to listen. We're going to listen to half the song and then we'll stand up and sing the, the second half of it is, It is well with my soul. Number one, you need to be in a right relationship with God. And if you've got sin in your life, and if you're not headed in a good direction, you need to fix that. It's never too late. There's nothing God cannot fix. We're all broken. We're all messed up. God is a fixer. But we've got to get the sin out of our life, and we've got to get right with Him. Is it well for your soul personally? But then also, is it well with your soul for your nation? You can't control everything. You're not in charge of everything. You can't change everything even if you wanted to. But is it well with your soul in that you're doing what God wants you to do for this day and time that we're living in? Because most Christians aren't doing much at all. But we need to do something. God will direct us. God wants us to defend His Word. He doesn't promise it's going to be, it's going to be nice and then it's going to end well. We may, all be in, uh, we may all end up having our homes raided by the FBI and be thrown in prison. But that's a better way to go out. Being persecuted for our Lord Jesus Christ instead of just sitting there quiet. Dr. Shane Perez hopes this lesson encourages you and equips you to minister to others with your walk as a Christian. We would love to hear from you. Drop us an email at Ministries at yahoo.com.